Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents, their ups and downs, and how they got to the White House. But more importantly, how history looks back on them. As always with me, the man, the myth, the legend, the one that actually writes the scripts, does the research, and takes us down the sweet rose of history. Mio, how's it going? You know, I think that today is going to be you know, a bit of a turn in a, a weird direction for most people, so I'm, I'm feeling a bit, uh, you know, concerned about, not concerned, but just worried that, you know, the, about you know, just how recent this episode gets into, I guess, like the current events and, mm. and all that, so we'll, we'll, we'll figure this all out here, but hopefully Don't people... Don't worry about that one, We're, we should be very worried about the last one. Fresh, fresh wounds. As people would say, time heals all wounds. And we've noticed that, at least on my end, from George Bush Sr., I would say, or no, from Regan onward, my wounds, yeah. at uh, least my uh, social uh, wounds or social awareness wounds, because I was a baby, are more far more fresh than when we were talking mad shit about Woodrow Wilson <laughs> or another president from that era. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I just found that, like... Historical precedent. The the episodes are much easier to put together if it's you know someone that's you know where I haven't been alive at the time or if it's like a hundred to two hundred years ago. But this one was tough. This was a tough one to to really do well. So we'll see what happens. So Neil, uh, what are we talking about today? We're doing our second part of Barack Obama, and the music plays. The year is 2012. That's right. Last time I did 2008. Now I'm going to do 2012 because, spoiler alert, he gets reelected. Connie 2012 or Connie 2012 or Coney 2012, depending on who says it. Viral documentary made waves on social media and YouTube as we save the world one hashtag at a time. Vladimir Putin is elected as president of Russia for the third time, I believe, or second time, and he has been the president ever since. Twelve people are killed and 58 are injured in a mass shooting at a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. The shooter, James Holmes, opened fire on a crowd during a screening of The Dark Knight Rises. The 2012 Summer Olympics are held in London, England. Hurricane Sandy, the largest Atlantic hurricane on record, wreaked havoc, resulting in 233 deaths and 68.7 billion damages. And I guess the United, the the U.S. state of Washington, where my friend currently resides, saw all that tragedy and said, "You know what? People need weed." So they became the first jurisdiction in the modern world officially to legalize. The possession of cannabis for personal use and 2012 United States presidential election. Barack Obama is re-elected as president of the United States, defeating Republican challenger Mitt the Mormon Romney. Neil, take it away. I really, when you do the 2021, I don't. I, I think that's just going to be too soon for me. I don't know if, <laughs> if I can take that current events um, rundown, but. We're back with Barack Obama and shifting our perspective quite a bit for part two, as we're going to be dialed in now on his presidential years today. You know, in part one, I really focused on Obama's very, you know, impressive individual qualities, as well as his 
unprecedented achievements as an individual, and I'm I'm glad I did because he deserves that praise and to be treated as a you know a highly significant historical figure. You know, nothing is going to take that away from and the fact that you know he you know, was a, a thoughtful, you know, personally decent human being. It's part of why we needed to make this a two-parter because today it's not about his personal journey or his personal qualities. It's about him as our president, which I'll admit now is much harder to find universal praise for. You know, in some ways, yeah. Okay. Like, <laughs> well, yeah. No, I mean, this is just the beginning here. You know, it, it, I think Yay. it's pretty, pretty unfair that out of all the years for him to win the presidency, that it had to be right as the country was on the brink of a financial catastrophe that was very close to reaching 1930s Depression era levels. At the same time, it can be fairly argued the crisis unfolding on Wall Street made Obama an even more appealing candidate to Americans because of his populist campaigning, where he emphasized that ordinary Americans were being exploited by banks and lenders who had all the incentive to recklessly mislead them into financial ruin. So for you know all the talk and grandeur of the campaign-style Barack Obama, the actual President Obama, who chose the policies and the actors to navigate the country through the Great Recession, was on a very different wavelength. One that was much more risk-averse to shake the country up, that desperately needed someone brave enough to drive some institutional change, and finally provide a check on the uncontrolled growth of income inequality in the country taking place since the late 1970s. And you can understand why when you take into account the era of democratic politics he matured into. The Democratic Party of FDR, Harry Truman, and LBJ that restructured the federal government to this highly professionalized, institutionally sound, and all-encompassing force that could build the entire modern infrastructure of the country, provide free college education, protect the nation's most sensitive and pristine habitats, and provide guaranteed health care to all seniors among many, many other feats, changed dramatically by the time we got to the 1990s. Obama came into political maturity at the height of the popularity of the sentiment that the government was the problem rather than the solution to America's problems. And witness Bill, you know, how Bill Clinton reshaped the branding of the Democratic Party in presidential elections by joining the chorus of rejecting, you know, wasteful, I put that in quotations, government spending. Clinton followed through in his presidency by eliminating welfare and social safety nets that millions of Americans relied upon through the ending the Aid to Families with Dependent Children program, and more so normalized the message to Americans that individualism and personal responsibility were going to be the centerpiece of federal economic policy. Jumping back to 2008, the Democratic Party Obama now had to lead was still very much Clinton's party in the general makeup of the new Democrats that came into power in the 1990s. And so the progressive New Deal-style culture that you know, would have better met the moment of the 2008 financial crisis really wasn't there. Even as Obama's New Deal-esque campaign style took off and captured the country's imagination. Furthermore, Obama had to contend with the fact that he was already shaking up the nation so much just in the fact that he would be the first black man to be leading the country. And while I can't confirm that was part of his calculus and how he handled the financial crisis, I think it's reasonable that someone in his position would be even more cautious about what example he sets as being the first of any group to occupy this type of position and the immense responsibility he has with not making a huge mistake. 
as you know, Yusef kind of alluded to in the part one. So you know, putting all this in the all that in the context, I feel this huge sense of disappointment for much of his decision making in the first two years of his presidency. And though he most certainly did not know it at the time, these first two years would ultimately shape the next decade of American politics that came afterward. The decisions that he made in his first two years and you know, get ready for this, as I don't think it's an outlandish statement, uh, but it may be to many listeners, were probably most responsible for the eventual presidency of Donald Trump to take place. And That's what pretty much every political pundit or wannabe historian like us tend to say, right? Like, that's that either his or his and his party's decisions and the way that they talked and treated explain their decisions, push the pendulum to that extreme. Mm. Um, so yeah. obviously everything is a pendulum swing. Like we went from this, like we can even use this example with Biden, like we went from this out of over the top outlandish personality to this, you know, wet blanket that we have. So it's always an extreme course correction that we are always seeing in politics. You know, that's a. I think that that's a, a good analysis. I, I think that Obama, though, would it? I mean, the way he governed, at least I think, when you compare other presidents, is wasn't in the extreme, right? I think the mistakes that he made, not towards the end of his presidency, but more towards the beginning of his presidency, were really like the the, the extremes that broke, you know, the democratic populism that they had in two thousand eight. Yeah. So. It is interesting because I think, you know, when we get into the Donald Trump episode, you know, a lot of it, I think it's going to be about the lead up to him becoming president. Right. And so yeah. <laughs> that I think, you know, a lot of people point fingers at Obama and mainly Hillary in those last two years. But I, I think no matter what they did in those last two years, like more so there should be criticism about what's done in this period that we're about to go over um, in this first yeah. years as president. So. Look, this is all very recent history, so much of this reality is still being played out in real time in terms of the implications of Obama's handling of the financial crisis. But, you know, I'm pretty certain that as time goes on, that conclusion will only grow in strength, as, you know, Yousef said here. So many people who voted for Obama in 2008 voted for Trump in 2016, despite him being a wildly different type of candidate, person, and, you know, everything in between. Their personalities cannot be any more different from one another. So, you know, how could that happen? How could Americans just eight years later move on to a wildly different type of populist message? And I think we get a lot of answers again from how this crisis is handled by the Obama administration. So, you know, let's go back to putting things in context again, Yusef. You know, what is the financial crisis in 2008? You know, I'm, I'm going to try to briefly summarize here as I did for Hoover and what caused the Great Depression in that episode. It was just, you know, one of our better ones, I believe. And just to get everyone up to speed here, you know, this is going to be pretty simplified. If you want to, are you are you going to be are you going to be in a hot tub with a with a <laughs> champagne glass? Everybody, close your eyes okay. and imagine Neil in a hot tub with a champagne glass, and he's going to explain the 2008 crisis and, right. and a British accent. Uh. You know, what's funny is that, like, I've, my wife and I, like, practice British accents all the way in our move from San Francisco to uh, Spokane, <laughs> because she was trying out for a musical that she had to do a, a, a Scottish and a British and a Russian accent, and so that was pretty fun, but I'm not going to do, it was, it did not go well on my end, so, 
if you want a high level view of everything that you know happened leading up to this crisis and every kind of variable to be explored this is not going to be for you necessarily but here we go you know in the year 2000 the american economy is relatively in great shape you know the government had a budget surplus gdp was growing steadily unemployment rate was low and wages were growing so mm -hmm. you know with the economy doing so well housing demand and prices steadily were increasing with it you know as a natural response and so reasonably anybody can see that there is money to be made in the housing market since in order for most americans to buy their homes they have to take out a huge loan from either a bank or credit union for the most part and your lender for your home holds the mortgage while you pay them back for the loan with interest you know your lender doesn't necessarily have to hold on to that mortgage but you know they can dump more than like right they can sell it um you know and just you know it, it, the chain kind of continues on then for more people to make money and invest in the housing market and so in an economy that's functioning well where the people who are buying homes have good credit ratings and steady jobs. You know, this investment into the housing market makes more sense because people are less likely to default on their payments and the country's financial institutions are not holding on to loans that can never be repaid and produce growth in the market and investment from shareholders. By the time we get to 2003, though, the economy is not doing as well for various reasons. And as a result, there are fewer home buyers out there to grow the housing market business for lenders and investors. Instead of just accepting that reality, lenders became much more predatory in their pursuit of home buyers and the loans that they were willing to approve for people who did not have the means to actually afford the homes they were buying. And they were being told they could, though, with little to no regulation from any government entity on how they were being misled and signing into mortgages that had hidden costs within them that drove them into falling on their monthly payments relatively quickly. And so this practice goes on throughout the 2000s. And by the time we get to around 2006 and 2007, our largest banks and financial financial institutions have created a web of highly risk-induced housing market due to increased defaults on mortgages that are being heavily invested in. Essentially because the housing market was seen as you know a surefire to never fail institution. Um, you know What makes this crisis so infuriating is that Everyone working for these banks and lending companies, you know, knew about these practices. They knew that they were offering loans to people who couldn't pay them back because they could move their mortgage for a profit. And that was well understood by, you know, executives at the very top of these institutions. And so as the winds of the financial crisis gathered strength in late 2007, the key question faced by both policymakers and those in the banking industry was that, you know, what should be done about the supposedly too big to fail firms, you know? And there are like several, you know, keystone institutions, you know, that ensure AIG, Mega Bank, Citigroup, you know, investment banks, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, all these Wall Street players, you know, were heavily invested in mortgage-backed securities, you know, that turned out to be, you know, the financial equivalent of just like, you know, tox toxicity. And, you know, it was clear that, you know, they would, you know, essentially crash the whole market if you know, they weren't saved if the government did step in. Worse off, you know, the funding market, the wholesale funding market, which is known as like a shadow banking system, provided daily credit flows on which flows on which the whole global financial system depended. And so this is a problem because it's experiencing kind of a bank run, you know, and with financiers, you know, can no longer get loans necessary for their daily operations. And so that's why this became you know, a, a whole, you know, encompassing catastrophe rather than just a housing market catastrophe. And so, again, without some kind of government rescue, the entire financial system would collapse.
this led to some of our, you know, lending, you know, our leading lending and financial institutions, you know, again, it threatened their whole financial stability. And so the initial response um, was, you know, from the Fed, they had this policy in unusual um, and, you know, very dire circumstances. They could use its money creating authority to purchase these companies um, that, you know, I already laid out. And once they are owned by the government, you know, they could be prevented from going bankrupt and there would be time to examine, you know, the books and, you know, fix up or isolate it from the rest of the market and not let it collapse. And so, you know, Henry Paulson, who's the Treasury Secretary of the Bush administration while this is all happening, decides to take control of the mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which were, you know, also on the brink of collapse. And, you know, this was a bit of a weird thing for people or at least for the Bush administration to kind of get comfortable with because it was it looked like they were nationalizing, you know, all these banks and financial institutions, even though they kind of, you know, led the economy into this, you know, terrible dilemma. Um, And so, you know, there was this push and pull of how to get people out of the crisis or how to get, you know, these these institutions out of the crisis without seeming too socialistic by, you know, using the government to kind of buy up their assets and kind of clear their books so that, you know, they didn't have just a treasure trove of debt um, and underwater mortgages. And so, you know, regardless of whether the government, you know, was doing the right thing, you know, there was, you know, the bailouts of, you know, these companies, you know, like AIG, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, was that you know you know they were really really unpopular not because they were you know socialists but it became a very apparent that you know how unfair this was to the American people in general you know all of these companies you know were making these terrible bets and then now they had the government you know able to rescue them with you know tens of bill really hundreds of billions of dollars and the Bush administration did little about the company's executives who had played such a crucial role in wrecking the American economy in the first place. And, you know, meanwhile, people suffering from those decisions were not bailed out. They continued to lose their jobs. They continued to lose their homes. And they had all of their pension funds and assets kind of taken away from them, which, you know, it turned out to be just making this crisis even more, you know, incredible in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, when people it's, when people say eat the rich, this is one of the the prime examples of as to it will never happen. Right. I mean, it's just sad. Like fourteen years old at the time this is happening, so I'm not really sure what's going on at all. But I mean, I can imagine, you know, if we were talking today and this is going on, like I would be so pissed. Like I am surprised that there was not more. Like talk about like widespread protests of like government action. Like this is just, you know looking at these numbers, just incredible. And so transitioning into President Obama taking over, really interesting because, you know, Obama has to reckon with the fact that, you know, he's not president yet. Um, He still hasn't even won the election and all this is going down. Um, And so Paulson kind of pulls in both the Obama and McCain campaign teams to try to figure this out with them and, you know, ensuring that, you know, whatever, you know, Paulson does on his end to try to mitigate this crisis, that there's some kind of coordination with whoever takes over office next so that, you know, this crisis can be kind of, you know, 
play, you know, at least managed in a cohesive, organized way. But at the same time, you know, the the Bush administration ideologically kind of takes advantage of the situation. Um, he turns to Obama, who becomes the president-elect, uh, to convince the Democratic-controlled Congress um, to pass TARP, which is the Troubled Asset Relief Program, and was voted down by Congress the first time that it was proposed, um, and passed the second time around with Obama's support. Um, and this essentially gives the Treasury way more authority to do these, you know, emergency actions that will pull the government out of financial crisis. And so it gave um, Paulson about $700 billion, again, to work with in getting um, the condition out of this, you know, ordeal. And so with the money in hand, you know, he didn't really consider ordinary people, you know, who had, were suffering terribly from the banking industry's choices. He actually just offered banks, you know, a really great deal gathering the heads of the nine biggest banks. Um, he informed them that they had to accept partial nationalization, but in exchange, their balance sheets would be strengthened with U.S. government cash. And, you know, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, you know, would guarantee their business checking accounts and their debt issued through, you know, you know, mid-2009. And so, you know, of course, these executives, like, agreed to these terms and, you know, some essentially got paid out, you know, for mm. running their institutions into to the ground. A, you know, a, a crisis. Um, Good job. And the, the government was not going to exercise its, you know, again, because the government became the shareholder, like the main shareholder of these of these companies, and it's not going to exercise its right to vote on the management of their companies. Um, you know, they require dividends reload. It would seek no changes of management. They wouldn't limit bonus payments except for CEOs. So really, like they're just giving him a really, really sweet deal. And I think that this is like the first mistake here. Working so closely with the Bush administration to coordinate this crisis turns out to be a pretty bad decision for Obama as it makes his presidency all the more difficult before he even takes office from Paulson's mismanagement and fears of giving off socialistic vibes to the American public. Now, I realize in hindsight, it's easier to make that judgment call. And I think, you know, Obama feared the backlash he would face or he could face if he decided to not cooperate with Paulson in a Bush administration and instead let them crash the country down even further. But to not push for accountability from the very people who negligently led these financial institutions and, for, and furthermore make them even richer in the process provided a lot of insight to the policy choices Obama would be comfortable taking while in office. Mm. So, you know, even as the government swooped in to bail out Wall Street, and and also and also feeds into the the very real but slightly false n narrative that Democrats are this rich elitist cult essentially that will always favor private uh, banks and private uh, businesses and will never look out for the for the for the blue collar working man. Even though Republicans do the exact same thing, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, traditionally, like they have. I mean, the reputation is that Republicans are really like that kind of party, right? Yeah. Um, at least within the past thirty to forty years, ever since Reagan took over, and so like that again is kind of flipped on its head, where like both parties seem more similar than ever in the situation. Yeah, they're and, both very comfortable with, you know, I usually don't curse, but you know fresh wounds um they're very comfortable with fucking over the 
the the so-called middle class and 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 always favoring the people that brought us to the brink of destruction, financial destruction. Yeah, I mean, there could be no. There really is not a lot of. You know, I, I try to give some context and some leeway to try to like you know make this as fair as I can be, but you know this is just um it's very sad to see you know just how screwed you know the American middle class and you know lower socioeconomic classes you know get from you know this this decision making um you know the economy was still so you know even as the government swooped in the bail out Wall Street and the banks slash financial sector of the country was you know saved the economy was still absolutely wrecked from the stock market crashing and unemployment increasing dramatically and so on top of that tens of millions of people now had mortgages for houses that were way overvalued as the crisis tanked in you know the housing market and threw people underwater on their mortgages in total the number almost reached a trillion dollars of losses for homeowners hmm. across the board many of these people being the same voters who were inspired by obama's campaign and now expected him to prioritize them in getting through this unprecedented crisis. All these major players responsible for the crisis were getting government help left and right. And what do you think these underwater homeowners got, Yusef? The answer is virtually nothing. And that's mm-hmm. not because they couldn't like, you know, do anything. It's just was all of a sudden too expensive to. You know, the Obama administration did not want to push for the government to foot the bill for homeowners to, you know, write down their mortgage during bankruptcy proceedings as they were afraid, you know, the the anger would make, you know, non-underwater homeowners get even more out, you know, get outspoken about it, you know, bailing out, you know, regular people. There was about $1 trillion, again, of negative equity and getting rid of it would have, you know, increased in consumer spending and could have healed the economy. But the government absorbing it in general was just thought to be too expensive, um, ironically. And so thus, since banks couldn't handle these losses and the government was unwilling to handle those losses, the Obama team really kindly just put this on homeowners themselves. And this would result in about 10 million families being forced out of their homes through foreclosure or so or other yes, we can. Nearly one out of every six homeowners lost their homes, and so no, yeah, it's wild. If you like, especially Florida was like the worst one. Like you could see, just the full-on developments just vacated. They would they would damage the economic futures of the neighborhoods that they were in. You know, some abandoned houses damage the value of adjacent homes, and so there were terrible, terrible like, you know, political side effects from this. Swing states, you know, had a, you know, definitely took the brunt of a lot of this. You think about states like Illinois, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, this 2016 ring a bell here in these states. Mm -hmm. Um, They overwhelmingly suffered the worst of this. Uh, Rust Belt states that were the hardest hit. Chicago, you know, the city that Obama came to, you know, political maturity in that helped rise his political career had the highest rate of negative equity among large markets. And so, you know, this became, you know, the kind of breeding ground for, you know, Donald Trump's presidential win. Yeah, so um, I'm always fascinated by the people that talk about capitalism almost like it's a deity or or it's a fallen angel like they put the put the essence of capitalism in such a high pedestal yet this economic system 
that we so love and try to protect from from socialism it's always on the brink of collapse like every five to ten years we have to be like oh my god we're gonna go into ruins due to capitalism and our and how our financial systems are established so it's it's wild to see that you know the 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 theory of taxes being we pay the government x amount of money to receive x amount of things yet every time that we need it it's oh no it's that's socialism right every time that yeah (laughs) but every every time that the private private sector needs it they're like oh wait (laughs) wait man we we cannot it's the free market. It's the capitalism. It's it. We cannot let it fail. We, we yeah, have we to protect it. Yeah, it, that's you know that that is the perfect way of putting it. I think like I just you know pay so much. The, the American government gets a shit ton of money every year from its public, and you know the fact that there was you know so little assistance here. Like this is just. I mean, this is going to be like case study number one for like just how to betray your, you know, your citizens and your constituents unjustly. <laughs> I mean, like in like the most just like uh, absurd of ways, like, you know, all that money they were using to bail out these banks was taxpayer money. Like that is just insane. And I know this is like a crisis that was, you know, it, it was unique. You know, no one ever, ever really dealt with it before. But this, you, you can easily, I think you can see then that this is just not the right way to go about it. And the fact that, again, there's no accountability really from anybody is just yeah. astonishing. It's astonishing. Like, why wouldn't you just, you know, make it like a whole public thing? Like, oh, like the FBI stormed in and arrested, you know, the CEO of like, you know, Lehman Brothers. Like, it's just, yeah, sorry. I'm just going to stop. I mean, it's like, it's like the PP, the PP loans of people that, you know, took government money just to enrich themselves and not keep like not every company like my company was incredible like my doctors took a pay cut like every single employee was kept on um like they were companies that did the right thing with the loans that they took from the from the banks but like most people just got richer yeah so it's like it's it's a recurring like bernie made of the people empowered are just like examples of pure greed that free market and capitalism breeds yeah, greed is greed is certainly unlimited. I think is what capitalism teaches you about society if you let it, you know, kind of just go unchecked. And so, so again, you know, this is a missed opportunity to deliver on the change we can believe in messaging of his campaign. Um, and, but you know, there's still a chance for you know Obama to turn this rough start around as he was, you know, he has the luxury of a stacked Congress controlled by his party, and so he can act pretty boldly on how to turn around the economy. Businesses were suffering as, you know, Americans were starting to spend much less during, you know, or they in general spend much less during economic crises than in any given normal period. And as a result, millions of Americans were becoming unemployed as the months wore on from late 2008 to early 2009. And so the Obama administration took the approach of crafting together a stimulus bill, also known as the Recovery Act, signing it into law very early into his first term in February of 2009. And the concept of a stimulus is fairly simple. Since spending was down, the government sought to offset private spending with a huge boost of public spending, you know, on things like infrastructure, education, and, you know, health, among other public sectors. And so this investment meant 
you know, it was meant to create jobs and get people back to, you know, making the incomes they were before the recession hit. And so this was a popular plan among the majority of Americans and much of the Democratic Party. The only issue was that the administration had to sort out with its passage, with its passage, you know, you know, how big were they going to make the stimulus bill? And there was disagreement among economists in Obama circles on what was necessary to have the, you know, the type of fast recovery the administration was so was, was shooting for, without spending so much that you can cause problems elsewhere in the economy. And so, this was going to be his only shot at controlling the pace of our economic recovery. So, you know, it was critical that if anything, he overshot the target rather than undershot. You know, he had advisors arguing for the stimulus to go to $1.7 trillion, you know, an unheard of amount of spending for 2009, but would also be a massive response to the hurt the American economy suffered. It kind of like, you know, meeting that moment. Obama listened, though, to his more conservative advisors and settled on $787 billion instead. In short, the stimulus you know, bill worked as predicted. The unemployment rate slowly came down for the rest of Obama's two terms, and the economy eventually got back on track to pre-recession levels. But economists have plenty of evidence to show today that the recovery would have been so much quicker if the stimulus bill had been higher. The administration's objectives were to have unemployment below 8% by the 2010 midterms, and instead they sat at 9.8%, a number that you know no president can point to and say that they were really putting up good results. And so yeah. just as Obama failed to beat the moment of resolving the housing crisis, hold the criminals, uh, <laughs> hold the cr- criminals who caused it accountable by taking the safer route, the safer, more conventional route, that is. He does the same with his signature spending bill. And again, he has an enormous mandate to really shake things up here by restructuring the economy to function well for normal workers again. But he's as Clinton-esque as you can get on his economic approach. No. It, <laughs> it stuns the voters who turned out in record numbers to throw in their support for him. I mean, he does—he even does nothing to regulate the companies that are starting to become monopolies as Facebook is able to buy Instagram in 2010. American Airlines is able to merge with U.S. Airways and more companies dominate their markets with no checks in their power. Income inequality would also continue to grow throughout his time in office, and he did very little to stop it. This is I'm just going to read a quote from Zachary Carter of the Huffington Post from this article here. You know, uh, you know, before you read that, I'm so I'm so happy with the direction of this podcast, because when 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 you announced it at the end of season three, right, this is season four. Uh, yes. Yeah. I told you that I was very nervous because I didn't have the positive outlook on Obama that you might have. And the way that you're talking is my outlook. So we're we're. Sure. Uh, we're vibing. Well, yeah, you know, I'm trying. I think it's a stark contrast from part one because I, I try to give Obama his flowers in part one. Yeah, he deserves his flowers for sure. Without, without, um, yeah, you know, it, trying to, yeah, it, it was again more of a straightforward episode, and I didn't want to really allude to me getting a lot more critical in this episode. But I think it's just important for people to know that, like, again, like. As I'm always going to preach on this episode, presidents do matter. Like the choices they make matter, and I think that 
you know, even as Obama kind of makes people more jaded to that concept, I think he proves it actually more than most presidents, uh, which is, you know, a weird dynamic. And so going back to this quote, you know, um, Obama is really talking about Obama's, you know, embrace of austerity, um, meaning that, you know, he was way more sympathetic to the message of like, okay, we need to really, you know, tighten up our spending and, you know, it's time for us to get tough and really, you know, tighten up our belts. Um, and that includes small businesses and families. You know, this was a very big movement in the late 2000s and early 2010s across, you know, European Union, across the U.S., really across the whole world on, you know, the problem being, you know, overspending, which really wasn't the problem. It was just, you know, capitalism running amok. And so he created, Obama created a bipartisan commission to slash a budget deficit. He advocated cutting Social Security benefits that disproportionately helped the poor. When the Bush tax cuts of his administration, George W., that is, were set to expire at the start of 2013, Obama you know, infuriated the then Senate majority leader of Harry Reid, who's a Democrat, when he intervened to maintain lower tax rates for people making $250,000 to $450,000 a year. And so Obama was prioritizing, you know, more of a value of, you know, making a deal with Republicans more than just raising taxes, the simple concept of raising taxes on very wealthy people, which is just, you know, shocking. But I feel like that was, that was also a decision to... Show that he could compromise? Yeah, because he, he kept like, I mean, I'm not defending, but he kept like getting blocked and, and he kept like, and hopefully you get to his overuse of, well, this is my presidential decision and this is what's going to happen then. But yeah, he kept getting blocked by the Republicans. I guess I was him trying to say, hey, Lizzie, I'm, I can play with you guys too. Please stop blocking everything I try to do. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, I'll get to a little bit. It is a bit unprecedented, like just the amount of unwillingness to work with him that, you know, the other party displays um, during his presidency, like just that kind of um, forcefulness of making sure he gets nothing done you probably couldn't have anticipated it, right? Um, and I think that there are some, never mind, I don't want to, I don't want to dive too deep into that yet. Um, but yeah, like, I, I think that it was naive, unfortunately. And again, I, I think Biden, in um, hindsight, kind of has this, the fortune of seeing how much, you know, Republicans are not going to work with Democrats, and really vice versa, right? In a lot of ways, yeah. You know, those first two years, you jam everything through as much as possible, because at this point, parties are not going to work with one another. If you want to actually get something through, you got to make those two years count <laughs> um, if you have congressional majorities. And so he was great. I mean, to again, you know, emphasize, you know, Obama was great at sounding like the guy who really understood the plight of working class Americans and in convincing them that, you know, he would be their true advocate. But time yeah, and again, like, just like Trump, Trump as well. Well, yeah, in a very different way, but yeah, I guess you could make the argument. But time and again, his policies outlined that he was advocating for a much more privileged class of Americans who were already financially doing fine. And he was content on ensuring that they stayed that way at the expense of lower socioeconomic groups. So you know, with time running out before the 2010 midterms, Obama turned his attention to another issue that 
this time actually does have the intention of helping the poorest of Americans. And that was the issue of the tens of millions of people who didn't have health care and had very little they could do to get access to it at an affordable cost. So he comes up with something with his you know, advisors called the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010, which does help a lot of poor Americans. You know, that's a fact. More than 20 million people have access to health care today than they did before it was passed in 2010, which is not nothing. And it also decreased costs severely for the worst, you know, for the lowest, you know, socioeconomic classes of Americans. Um, you know, just to go through kind of what the, you know, the bill did, it made affordable health insurance available to more people. It provides consumers with subsidies that lower costs for households with incomes between 100% and 400% of the federal poverty level. So if your mm. income is above that 400% level, you know, you could still maybe qualify for this tax credit. And so there's just all these like different types of categories that, you know, kind of affect based off your income can affect like, you know, your own insurance costs if you, you know, choose to, you know, not have, you know, your own private health insurance through your employer or some other method. Um, and also supportive, you know, medical care delivery methods designed to lower the cost of health care generally as well. So I hate to keep railing on Obama, though, Obama's decision making, but I think that still this was another kind of dumb miscalculation by his whole yes. team focused on getting this bill passed. And it's not even that successful because <laughs> like it's very short sighted and it created a lot of problems in the health healthcare system and it needed a lot of subsidies and a lot of patchwork and it's still like like it's a zombie walking through the healthcare system right now which in theory like it should be an amazing thing like yes we want that i'm not saying we don't want like healthcare for poor people but clearly he just like this is something since the clinton era that we've we've been trying to do and well, he wasn't even f- trying to do that, you know. That that's my problem is, is like he wasn't even trying to go that bold, you know. Like if you're gonna try to do this, like why yeah. not have medi- like it wasn't Medicare for all, right? It was yeah, this whatever like you know really like hard to understand bill that like you know unfortunately it, it helped out a lot of people, but I didn't mean to cut you off. Like it just it, it didn't help out like you know really more than ten percent of the country. Right. We have yeah, they were like, no, this is going to fix everything. And then they were like, oh, wait, we need to do subsid, uh, subs- subsidize the cost. So the government is going to be paying off. And you're like, yeah, that doesn't sound like you planned this out very well. If you have to do subs- subsidized cost effects afterwards, like it should have been within your scope of knowing. And also how, the way that they went about it, it was honestly a little bit shady, like the the person in, in charge i i don't know her name i know it was a woman um of like promoting the bill and like establishing like the way that they almost blackmailed or or strong hand or strong i don't know the word strong handed right is that that's right. the term yeah um i i, I am never gonna fucking like, I'm, I'm cursing too much on this episode i'm <laughs> never gonna be you know, oh, poor healthcare um, companies, they really got the short ends of the sick. But again, like evil doesn't like with good intention doesn't rectify. Like they literally blackmail companies like if you don't agree to this, we're essentially going to cut you off of the entire healthcare system. And it's like, OK, that's not how you do business. But OK, you do you. Right. 
yeah you know i think that it's just yeah i mean it, it, it was yeah that, that's a very complicated topic because like health insurance companies obviously they employ a ton of people obviously yeah. health insurance no one really likes health insurance right but it's kind of just part of you know you can't like just necessarily get rid of it and so i think that in, in some sense like you know Obama acknowledged that and trying to work with the private health insurance industry too, but um, it just wasn't, yeah, you know, I don't even know how you incorporate it. It definitely wasn't the time to try to have this conversation is really what it comes down to. And if you want to compare, like, I think, you know, let's compare this to something that like Biden did in his first two years here, which is it's being challenged on court, right? But getting rid of student loans for, you know, people, like I think like 10,000 across the board and then 10,000 more for people who um, got a, you know, federal Pell grants um, while they're in school. Like that, you know, you don't need to pass a bill, or at least he's not trying to, to get that mm-hmm. done. And it actually affects more people than really like, I mean, in like a very significant way than like the ACA did, all through kind of just one swoop of an executive action. Like I think that it's much more effective in just getting something done for people in a very quick manner than choosing to use, you know, choosing to try to congressionally pass this through. So yeah, so I wanna just, I wanna point to her name is um, Kathleen Sebelis. She was mm-hmm. she served as the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and she also, like I mentioned, the subsidies. Um, hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies to private health insurances companies were provided by her in 2011, despite the fact that the Affordable Care Act expressly forbids such an action. So that's another fun fact about the whole affordable health care. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, for as much as his administration was kind of um, praised for not having controversy, um, Sounds like there's more, there's more to dig oh, yeah. in. Oh yeah, and that. also the the Medicaid the Medicaid expansion that just wrecked all those states' um, budgets and it's on a whole other whole thing. Well, but, yeah. I, well, I I would take I think that this again this is getting into the weeds a lot, but the Medicaid expansion I it think, was like fifty percent more expensive that they calculated. Like it just wrecked everybody's budget and, uh, and the, the, yeah. the spending was out of control. So I don't know. I'm just saying I, like the things that they try to do in those two areas ended up being like just messes despite them being like on paper looking like, Oh, you're trying to do the right thing. And that's just giving healthcare to people, expanding Medicaid, all those sounds wonderful. And then it just, just a shit show in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it has, like, again, like, in 2022 perspective, I think the bill works, like, it, it's finally kind of leveled out, right? Like, it leveled out, I think, a bit more later in Obama's years where it wasn't, like, the mess that it, you know, kind of started off with because it's just confusing. And I think Medicaid mm-hmm. expansion, for the most part, has is fruitful, right? Because, again, like, more yeah. people are able to get cheaper health insurance. And, like, I think a lot of, you know, I don't want to be, like, you know, uh, like ideological about this or like try to like say Republicans are bad, Democrats are good. I just think also to combat like any kind of popularity going towards ACA, Republican governors had the incentive to kind of reject the Medicaid expansion and you kind of kind of blame it on costs as well. And so there were incentives that were kind of perverse on those ends. But but just to go back over, you know, the benefits of the ACA were not, like you said, were not going to come to fruition until well after the midterms, which 
everybody knew but thought that the fact that healthcare reform would finally be achieved would somehow satisfy Americans that were losing their homes and jobs and entire sense of well-being. You know, it didn't make sense to go after healthcare reform in an economic crisis because the political stakes were, you know, just much too too high. You know, there was no immediate political benefit. And his administration spent close to a year making it Congress's top priority when they could have been doing more to pass laws that would be immediately fruitful and popular. And so Republicans successfully controlled the media narrative that you know the ACA was a jump in a socialistic direction, even though the bill worked with and maintained the strength of private health insurance companies to an extent. And it was altogether deeply misunderstood about who would truly benefit. You know, middle class Americans, by far the largest voting bloc, unfortunately have had, you know, little to gain from the ACA, have never in, you know, have never felt, you know, diminishing health care costs from its passage necessarily. And so while the bill was noble, like we said, and did, you know, it did help a whole lot of people, it was, you know, the the, the real I think the real crisis of it or the real problem with it is that it was relatively unpopular. <laughs> and so Besides the stimulus bill, in which he underachieves to an extent, Obama gets very little right in, you know, by far the most crucial two years of his presidency from 2009 to 2011. And while it's pretty evident that he's getting far worse media treatment compared to his predecessors during his time, you know, the midterms of 2010 should have not surprised anyone with the disaster they became for the Democratic Party. You know, they're still trying to recover from the losses that they incurred just in that election. You know, it was the most devastating of probably any midterm in history. Republicans picked up 63 seats in the House, six seats in the Senate, and thousands of local elections all over the country that shifted the political climate tremendously back in their favor. Even more importantly, it gave Republicans the power to take control of the gerrymandering process across— Yes, I was going to bring it up even— yeah, 2010 was a census year, and many states draw their congressional districts through their state legislators. And so he would never see a congressional majority again for the remainder of his presidency. And so everything else he wanted to pack into his presidential agenda was pretty much doomed from 2011 onward. You know, after the elections, Obama remained optimistic that Republicans would eventually work with him on important legislation. And given, and, and maybe controversial thought here, Neil. Given how his first two years went, how bad would it have been if he had power, if they had power for those rest of the years? Or do you think he would have get better acts and better legislations afterwards? This is controversial. I mean, yeah, I think that he, I don't know. I mean, no, I think that he would, well, I, yeah, I think his prioritization of, you know, just issues. Ooh, Ooh yeah. you really, Neil? You didn't <laughs> expect that question. I didn't. I guess That's I never thought question, about it. Though. I have faith. I have faith that he, you know, we, again, because he, he has such a calm temperament and, like, a thoughtful presence that, like, he seems to really know what he's doing. And so I, I just tend to think that he had bad advisors and he wanted to kind of not rock the boat too much because he was just in such an unprecedented position. And so I think, you know, having more experience in the presidency, he would have gotten the hang of it a bit more and being able to, like, you know, pass legislation that was a bit more effective. Right. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, that's that's something we'll never know, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I could be wrong. 
you know, but, you know, after elections, he, again, he remained optimistic that he would be able to work with the Republican Party. And in other decades and circumstances, they probably would have. But the Republican Party of the 2010s, as we all know too well, was a much different animal than the party of Reagan in the 80s through the 2000s. You know, time and again, Obama compromised to the middle on passing legislation in his first two years to show good faith to the Republican Party that he was willing to take their voices into consideration. And they did not give him that same courtesy and pretty much refused to work with him on anything he thought would be constructive for the nation as a whole, such as gun control legislation after the Sandy Hook shootings, immigration reform, and even greater investments in public schools and education, something that usually most people can get behind. He had to fight with Republicans each year ferociously when it came to approving a budget, you know, going into government shutdowns more than once just to force their hand. Everything that he wanted to do congressionally was a slog, and Republicans had no incentive to work with him because their strategy worked. Well, you know, while he narrowly won re-election in 2012, Democrats continued to remain very unpopular compared to their 2008 heights. And in the 2014 election, they lost both the House and the Senate, ensuring that Obama wouldn't even be able to pick a Supreme Court nominee when Antonin Scalia died in 2016. And he went from 59 senators, I think he actually had a 60 senators at one point in 2009, to being less than 50 by the time we get to 2014. And so I think that this is another just condemnation of the Obama presidency in that he never really had a successful election other than ones that he was running in, which most people would say that's common. That's, you know, something that, you know, yeah, every right, president right, someone goes through. But to be tough to, like, judge Trump or from his, like, endorsements and, and how the Republican Party fluctuates underneath him. And I think it's fair to judge Obama under under how the, 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 the his party performed during elections because he endorsed a lot of those candidates that went nowhere. Well, I mean, just he he himself, I don't think, you know, he couldn't transcend his popularity into pop, into excitement about the Democratic Party. Like he had Would you own- would you consider him like a good player? Again, maybe a controversial opinion, right? A good player in a shitty team and that's why he shines so much or because you know, a great player elevates his team. No, I think that he was a uh, I mean, how can we, like, the, the the reverse of that. Like, he was a great individual player. Think about somebody who just, like, scores 30 yeah, goals. Yeah, he's a, he's a Russell Westbrook. In right, OKC. but his team is shit. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and I think that... you put that him that, in a good team and maybe he doesn't perform that same way. Well, yeah, you know, I just think that, you know, really... I, I've always thought that young American, like young presidents, like would make for better, for for being more effective. But I think Obama, you know, he came into office when he was forty-seven years old. He's pretty young for American presidents, and you know, really, like I think the lack of experience, the lack of like getting people really behind the party, like came just like always came back to haunt him for him being able to you know carry on the legacy that he wanted to carry on through the executive branch. Like yeah, like. He wasn't great at galvanizing people to candidates. Um, and I think you see that in 2016, right, where he's picking his successor. Um, and so kind of like wrapping up his presidency a bit, you know, the only things he had more direct control over for the remaining six years of his time in office were over foreign policy and issuing executive orders. 
the latter he would use in greater force towards the end of his presidency out of frustration. Um, and so Obama's foreign policy record, you know, it isn't terrible, but it's not exactly a resounding success either. He reduced troop presence in Afghanistan and Iraq by the tens of thousands in his first term while maintaining, you know, stability in both countries and gambled with his presidency in approving a risky mission to kill Osama bin Laden that was successful. And yeah, understandably, sure. he, took, he took a huge victory lap, but I'm either way. I'm going to on the, on the foreign policies being okay, given the fact that three, just three days into his presidency, he authorized his first drone strike into Pakistan that killed as many as 20 civilians. And in his two terms, he did 540 strikes, having vastly expanding and normalizing the use of drones yeah. uh, in Middle East. And so I don't, I, he's, he has a lot of civilians and he, well, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, it's, no, I, a, I think that's, no, I'm not trying to, sorry, I didn't mean to uh, kind of like, yeah, be make a deal out of the Bin Laden thing. I was just gonna say with that, like that I did. It's, I think it's always dis- distasteful to celebrate somebody's death, even like someone that you know as horrible as a person who like you know is responsible for so many deaths. Like I just, I think as a culture to celebrate like killing someone, like it should just be like okay, that's done. Like you know, we can kind of move on. We don't we don't need to celebrate it as like the biggest achievement, right? Because it's just like like what happened happened already yeah, like you know the, the, the pain of that is not going to go away like whenever we kill this like terrible like you know um you know per, who like a terrorist or whatever like you still like you know killing someone is not something to just like i just don't like how that in a society we have to really like you know display that on every news network like you know we are a tremendous nation for doing that you know it's just yeah it, 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 I think it's just like an ugly sentiment in that sense. Like we should be a higher moral authority than just being like, oh yeah, we really got this guy, you know. Um, so I just hated that. <laughs> um, I think that this also just points like, you know, Obama doesn't have a military background, right? Like not someone who necessarily, yeah, has any of that expertise in his upbringing, you know, kind of other than, you know, he just probably is someone who reads a lot. Um, and so... Like, this just really more so, like, sinks in the point. Like, yeah, he's, like, you're correct in that, like, he used drones like crazy. Like, it was, it's kind of similar to what Eisenhower did with covert operations, you know? It's a whole new type of warfare to try to avoid troop movement, to try to avoid, like, troop deaths. But at the same time, it's at the expense of civilians in these countries, and you know, it has more destructive capabilities than I think, you know, Obama understood with, you know, authorizing its use in such a widespread manner. Um, and I, and I, and, and also I, I agree that, you know, on, on the surface, it looks like, oh, that's awesome. We didn't have to move troops in. Uh, we didn't take, you know, our, our people away from their homes, um, our family, their families stayed intact. Uh, mm-hmm. There wasn't this worry about, you know, are they coming back? All that stuff. Yeah, it really neutralizes that. But it also creates this um, voyeuristic or... Um, yeah, I mean, disassociation in a sense. Like, like, I mean, yeah, you're not really... I mean, yeah, I think it's kind of similar to how... No, it people... just... It's always, like, obviously I'm not going to say it makes it easier because I bet it weighs on you, but 
going there and killing somebody is far more harder than you at home playing on your controllers, pressing a button, and boom, 20 people are gone that you don't even see on screen. Yeah. I mean, I think it just gets rid of the horrors of warfare, like, out of Americans' minds even more, right? But even though the country is still on this, like, military-industrial complex sort of level of trying to control world events, you know, like, I just... It, it's not like he's just doing it just to do it, right? Like, the, like, causes are there. He's trying to take out, you know, you know, really harmful dictators that use chemical weapons on their citizens. He's trying to... But, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, I, I just think that it's so naive to try to just, like, insert yourself in ways where, like, you can cause even more instability and more suffering for people. Like, the, the fact of the matter is, is that just, like, this is a tough region to, like, really try to, you know, direct, like, governments to, like, your bidding, in, right? Like, you yeah. know, that they have people there who want to make their own decisions and, like, they have a choice and if they want to like revolt and try to, you know, change their government. And so, you know, like I, I just, yeah, like the whole foreign policy, just like ambitions of presidents like today, like, you know, in Obama's president, I'm just surprised by how vast it was, you know, they would end up, the administration would end up heavily contradicting themselves in foreign affairs compared to, you know, what their campaign promised. Closing Guantanamo Bay was a central theme to Obama's foreign policy objectives, and it never happened. De-escalating conflict in the Middle East region was as well, and while he made more of an effort there, like we said, you know, he really just more so replaced troops with drones, and that did little to really help matters in the region. He used drones to aid Libyan rebels, for example, in taking down their longtime dictator, Muammar al-Qaddafi, causing instability in a large power vacuum in the surrounding region um and so you know these events also you know arguably led to instability in syria and they took out their dictator as well and you know then we have the rise of isis later in obama's presidency that gains a huge foothold in the region and it takes a lot more territory than you know the obama's administration really they they called isis at one point like the jv squad you know of like (laughs) just like military like rebels you know trying to take control and it ended up kind of being embarrassed by how effective they were um you know other, there are some achievements i mean i guess depending on your perspective certainly you know there's a, a hot button issue the iran nuclear deal was a foreign policy i think you know the obama administration would call it an achievement you're essentially limiting the capacity of a nuclear ambitious country in making any nuclear weapons, but you're also conceding still just a lot of, you know, I mean, you're, you're taking away a lot of like, it's you know, what it had cut off like financially to be, you know, to be able to make these weapons in the first place. Right. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think, I mean, the agreement seemed to be like a solid one and like, it, you know, Iran, I think deserves to, you know, <laughs> Iran is such a like a complicated country, I think, to even try to talk about, especially on this episode. But, you know, I just feel like our country really put them on a path to like not being able to control their own future as well. Um, and it could be like just with everything going on in the country right now, it, I hope that, you know, their people kind of find the solution that they're looking for in terms of getting like a, a greater nucleus of freedom that they've had and being able to like kind of participate more in it 
internationally, um, financially. Um, you know, they briefly opened border relations with Cuba as well. But is that even is that true today? Can you go to, to Cuba today? Um, I don't know what happened under Trump. I know that we hey, I went to I went to Cuba through a through a cruise ship that was I think at the beginning of Trump's presidency. So I mm. think he did something else to close it down. Yeah, I'm not sure where that stands today, but that was I mean that was a huge deal considering, you know, that was border was closed for more than 50 years. Um at least for Americans and you know Paris Climate Peace Accords in 2015 are a huge step in the right direction for trying to do something about climate change, even though the mostly symbolic step um, that, again, Trump kind of pulls us right out of right as he takes office as well. So it's not very long standing on the, from the U.S.'s perspective. Currently, we are back in with the Biden administration, but, you know, who's going to know in 2024? <laughs> um, and then gay marriage constitutionally becomes protected in 2015 as well. You know, 2015 is actually sounds you know pretty good year. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not sure if that Obama deserves that credit, but certainly it, I think the culture change within his two terms towards, you know, you know, gay marriage and LGBT, LGBTQ rights uh, definitely takes huge, huge strides forward that, you know, hopefully, you know, never get pulled back again. And so it's a, it's a huge, you know, progress in, in social change during the Obama years here. And so... In the conclusion, you know, I think Obama ends his presidency, you know, with his highest approval ratings since the first half of 2009. He has the economy clicking on all cylinders again as unemployment moves towards historic lows and the stock market moves towards record highs. It seems like he has a better understanding of how to keep the nation stable and healthy from a president's perspective. And his chosen successor for the office for, you know, presidency, Hillary Clinton, seems well on her way to carrying on his legacy. Of course, that's not what happens as voters turn to a different approach to, you know, burn the entire house down, largely motivated by the anger and betrayal of the administration's actions immediately following the 2008 financial crisis, you know. Swing voters in the crucial Rust Belt states that suffered most from the recession turn to someone who has no problem telling them that the game is rigged against them and it always has been. That they should not be blaming that they should be blaming the Washington swamp, you know, immigrants, political correctness, and so on. You know, Obama is not on the ballot in 2016, you know, to kind of crush the Trump momentum he helped ignite. And we move into a whole different world after election day of 2016. But while I have a lot of love for President Obama, you know, as highly regarded as he is and will continue to be, I think. Speaking on purely presidential presidential actions, his legacy is going to suffer as time goes on. You have any closing thoughts, Yusef? I feel like it's slightly um, disappointing because my first election, you know, being a resident of the United States and having a license and all that jazz that you needed, you know, was Hillary Clinton versus versus Trump, right? I remember thinking out loud or even saying to my wife, like, it's so disappointing that this is the the candidates that I have because I'm not a fan, as I stated here, of the Clintons. And obviously, I'm not a fan of Trump. And I remember saying, like, I wish that I could have, you know, had a president like Obama. And then the more that I've researched and learned and understood what was his presidency, and how disappointing it was. 
it 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 that's the word that was just disappointing because on the surface he looked like he could have saved the world yet he ended up being either what you expect of a prototypical politician or what unfortunately the right the far right has demonized or villainized of the left yeah that's kind of my thoughts yeah it's kind of hard to think of like who's going to really be like this transcendent president you know because nobody i don't think really anybody anticipated harry truman to be that way or lbj to be that way i don't want to pick just democrats i guess like even um lincoln ulysses s grant yeah lincoln you know like i just you know, I think that sometimes just the people who, for whatever reason, you least expect it out of, like, surprise us. You know, um, George H.W. Bush surprised me. I know you don't like him, but, you know, oh, as someone someone who didn't, I didn't think, you know, would be a, a overall okay president. Like, I think that he was well more than, you know, better than a lot of his peers. And so it's weird, like you think it's someone who's just so inspirational and so decent and so thoughtful. Like, again, I'm just going to go on and on because like, I mean, there's any person any president I'd want to have a conversation with just to, like hang out. Like it would be president Obama. It just seems like, you know, like someone, you know, you really want to be able to relate to, or at least like be able to like admire the people that, you know, are your leaders. And so, yeah, I also feel that sense of disappointment and like the, the pride that I felt voting for Obama, like, I mean, it's still there. It still was a cool election and a cool experience, like I talked about in part one. But, you know, I I hope that, like, you know, there's other presidents to point toward later on that I feel a bit more of like a, oof, I'm glad that we got that person in later on. So, yep, this is where I stand. You know, he's not certainly never going to be the worst president or, you know, not. I mean, the. The financial crisis is pretty bad. That's a pretty bad legacy to carry on. That again, it's just going to haunt him. I think as we go on and on. But certainly, you know, in the in the mid tier presence to me. All right, Neil. We've come to everybody's favorite time of the podcast. Everybody's segment. The moment that I make you pick your favorite president of all time, legally binding. The last time around, Warren G. Harding lost to Dwight D, no LGBT, something like that. Now we kind of have a challenger in Obama. Maybe we can. So probably won't can. I don't know. <laughs> so, Neil, who's your favorite president of all time? Yeah, I, I, you know, at some point in my life, I probably would have, you know, I used to be a really big Obama fan. and. Yeah, you know, I I don't like saying this, but again, he's just going to be, I mean, he's probably going to be sitting like 50, in the range of like 18 to 27. I don't really know where he's going to fall, but definitely not as high as Eisenhower. So I'm going to go with the Republican, Dwight D. Eisenhower, to continue being the champion. <laughs> I am um, pleasantly surprised. I'm not saying that I'm against Obama, but like if... If we had an editor who had time, they could splice it in right now when I said I'm worried about this episode because <laughs> I was preemptively expecting kind of like a Clinton episode where I was 
I was like, no, they're shit. And you were like, no, they're, uh, you know, they're pretty, <laughs> pretty okay. So I'm glad that today we were like. We should make Clint a two-parter. <laughs> yeah. We should have, actually. <laughs> I wanted to talk more shit on him. He plays the saxophone. So yeah, so 2023 vibes, man. We're but we're we're wavelinking. So Neil, yeah. we're, what's the next episode where we're gonna be simpatico again? That's a big word. Ooh, yeah, I like that. You know, we're gonna go back to the the really grand facial hair era Ooh. with one of the one of the greats in Rutherford B. Hayes going to the 1870s. That's, that's a mouthful. Can you say <laughs> that first name again, please? Rutherford. I am not going to be saying that his name in the entire episode. All right, so. Call him Ruth. Ruth Hayes. Rutherford B. R. Hayes. So, all right. I'm excited. Thank you for listening. We're excited for season four. We're back. 2023. We have very few episodes left. Very few. So. Yeah. We're going to savor them. Yeah. We're going to savor them and probably by. by, um, Summer, early fall. Yeah, summer, early fall. That's when we end it. That's yeah. when we kill this. Yeah. Put it out to pasture. All right. 100%. See you guys. In, thank you. See you guys in two weeks. Bye. Bye.